This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. This podcast is brought to you through support from our partner, the Kaliapea Foundation. The Kaliapea Foundation envisions a future grounded in compassion, respect, dignity, reverence for nature, and care for each other in the earth. To learn more, visit Kaliapea.org. Welcome to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are sharing with you a special edition episode from our time at Sundance Film Festival. Media can either obstruct or grow our imaginations. At best, It reminds us of what's important and possible. It indulges our emotions and creativity. At worst, it dictates the whims of corporations and a select few. It creates fear, mistruths, and feeds into our insecurities and weaknesses as consumers. Independent media and cultural work are vital resources as we navigate this world and create the next. We were more than curious to see how Sundance Film Festival is navigating these realms. I wanted For the Wild to attend Sundance this year to ensure that a group whose interests are not embedded in mass media would ask the questions that would otherwise be left untouched by corporate mass media. While Sundance's origins are independent, we still think it's important that organizations like For the Wild show up to see whose interests are really being served. We wanted to know if it's possible for films to challenge corporate ideology in high-profile spaces that are becoming more and more corporatized. What is being covered and what is being left out? Who gets to tell these stories and where are the conflicts of interest? How are artists challenging us and how do we as an audience need to challenge artists and filmmakers? We hope to continue supporting independent media and shining our light on the many powerful narratives we are lucky enough to hear. This year at Sundance, I watched so many incredible films that are bearing witness to this critical time, are telling profound stories of extinction and highlighting the individuals like Leah Tismill, featured in The Advocate, or the National Immigrant Youth Alliance, featured in The Infiltrators, as they pursue justice and the awareness that there is no other option. We are thankful to so many of these filmmakers who are depicting these stories and ensuring that these struggles are not in vain. Fabulous. Well, welcome to this interview with For the Wild podcast. We're at Sundance Friday. It's a clear, crisp day outside. Yeah, mic check. One, two, one, two. I'm kind of talking a little bit quietly just to respect the space around us. I don't want to be like shouting over everybody. (laughs) Director Happy Meta from the film Moretta, How Mom Decolonized the Screen. My full name, my full full name is Heperi Tikitiri Mata, but I won't, uh, I won't challenge you with that one. 
In the 1970s, Mareta Mita broke through barriers of race, class, and gender to become the first Maori woman to write and direct a feature film. Tackling controversial issues of indigenous social justice in both documentaries and fiction, the pioneering activist filmmaker faced harassment and violence. Persevering, she emerged as one of New Zealand's best-known filmmakers and a powerful voice for indigenous peoples around the world. Moretta was also a longtime advisor to Sundance Institute, and the Indigenous Artist Fellowship bears her name. In Moretta, How Mom Decolonized the Screen, Moretta's youngest son, Hepi, crafts a deeply intimate portrait of his late mother. One thing you were mentioning was the violence that you and your family had endured, and I'm wondering, how did that shape this film, the storytelling, and how did it shape your mother's work as well? Well, it's interesting because um, I was very fortunate. By the time I was born, my mother was quite successful. She was coming to Sundance, and I got to go with her as a child. And so I I come from a background of, of immense privilege. So for me, it was quite an awakening. You know, I was very naive about the way things were. I mean, I knew it was tough, but I didn't know it was as hard as it was. And to hear these, these things from my mother, she sheltered me, you know, you know, she made sure that my experience would not be what she had to endure. For a lot of filmmakers, they talk about their challenge being maybe a technical thing or, you know, just learning the craft of it. For me, it was actually building up the courage as my mother's youngest son to go to my older brothers and my sister and to talk about these memories that they had suppressed, memories of racism, memories of police brutality. I remember after one of my interviews with my, one of my brothers, he told me you know, he had never spoken to any of that, to anybody before. Um, so that was really heavy. And I look up to them as authority figures, and I love them. And I was really pushing them to go to this place to talk about these things. And it took me five years to make the stock. And i got to say, most of that time was me just building courage to have that conversation with them. And the great thing about it is it actually brought us a lot closer to, to have that talk, you know, to address these things, the elephant in the room. Because, you know, what pained me the most about my mother's story is that she was doing her work to build a better future for her children. And through her work, particularly in those early years, you know, she was branded a radical. And not only did those who opposed her worldview come after her, but they targeted her children as well. So it's almost like this contradiction. You know, you're, you're doing these things to make a better future for your kids at the same time your children are suffering. And what I felt was really humanizing about my mother is she had a lot of regret because of that journey and because of the journey her children went on with her. And so for us, you know, the, the next generation, the, the really beautiful part of making this film was the forgiveness and, and of them understanding and them believing in what she was doing. Despite the trauma that they were subjected to, you know, saying that they would do it all over again with her was one of the most rewarding experiences. So regardless of how successful the film may or may not be, that reward for me personally was greater than any kind of critical or financial success.
The vaquita, the world's smallest porpoise, is on the brink of extinction. Its habitat ravaged by illegal fishing practices that target the Totoaba fish for its highly prized swim bladder, known as the cocaine of the sea. Vaquita are collateral damage caught up in the Totoaba nets. Their numbers have declined to just a few individuals left in the wild. Environmental activists, Mexican Navy, and undercover investigators are fighting back against this illegal multi-million dollar business. Director Richard Lutcani and film subjects Andrea Crosta and Carlos Loret de Mola with their film Sea of Shadows. Well, the, one of the big problems is that it is a system that is like system failure of the Mexican government. They have just not taken this threat seriously enough for them. It's just like an environmental problem. They look the other way. We have more serious problems. But this is serious because this is just gonna die. Like there's an ocean that is dying. You can't bring it back. You know, yes, you can go after like the cocaine trade and other things. And, and this will continue. You know, there is many elements to that. But this is so urgent because it started kind of three years ago. And just in three years, this ocean system has collapsed. Like it's really death everywhere. The ocean, like when you go to the beaches, you see carcasses of dolphins, of turtles, of sharks, of everything. And nobody cares, you know. And we think that people should care. And you mentioned it, Andrea, before that the cartels, they're, they're fueled by like social problems. You know, they go to people and say, hey, work for us. Make, you make the big bucks. But what they're actually doing is they're extorting people because they, they provide nets for them. But they have to pay back the three thousand dollars that these nets cost in case they lose like them. Servitude. Exactly. So what happens is these fishermen, they are lured by money, yeah. but then they become slaves to the cartel, and it's very hard to escape that. So the only people that can break this system is the government, but they have to take it seriously, and that's why our work here is so important. Of every one of us, is to show them, and to show the world. This is what's happening in your front yard, in your backyard, and you're looking the other way. But we will tell the whole world what's going on here. And you better do something about it because, you know, you'll be shamed into doing that if, if you don't. Like, you have to be responsible for not doing anything about it or held responsible. And we want to bring that to the attention so that the system can be broken and we can show the world that change is possible. Um, yes, and... Uh so our work, and, and, in, and in, doc in the documentary, for the first time ever, you see it very well. Our work was about, okay, let's map and investigate and collect intelligence along the entire supply chain, and let's find the guys who are really at the center of everything, okay? And in our opinion, are, uh, is the Chinese community in Mexico, okay? And it, we were actually, it was the first time that someone said, hey, it's more complicated than just fishermen. It's uh, and even more complicated than narco traffickers, because the real drivers are the Chinese. They place the orders. They buy the Totoaba, and then they smuggle back to China. And by doing that, by act, they're actually committing other crimes because they money laundering. They even into human smuggling. So they're using this money for other crimes. So it is very important that the Mexican government finally takes a look at the entire supply chain and work in a strategic way, not just in a reactive way, putting off fires. Uh, they have to think about what they are doing. There is a lot of homework to be done from their side because we are just an NGO and, and, he, and, and Carlos is a, is a journalist. We cannot arrest people. We cannot take down these people. They have to do it. 
best case scenario, they would do it together with China. Uh, a few weeks ago in China, they had the, the largest seizure ever of Totoaba, millions of dollars, 16 people arrested. So maybe they're waking up, maybe they feel the pressure as well. But it's crucial when you have such complex problems in front of you, environmental. What I repeat all the times, every time what I ask is, okay, when you're talking about this kind of environmental crimes, just forget the first word. Just forget environmental. It's crime with capital C. And that's the way you should approach this thing, not just environment. Otherwise, they will always win. They will always be ahead of you because they're smarter. They've been doing this forever. Let me go into detail for, for you. There is this fish called Totoaba. The Chinese believe that the swim bladder is of curative powers. The Totoaba is about the same size as the vaquita. So the vaquita gets trapped in the same gildness that they use the Totoaba. So officially there is a ban, so you cannot fish Totoaba on, on open seas. But illegal fishermen do fish for Totoaba. They get paid approximately three, four thousand dollars for a nice size swim bladder of the Totoaba. And that same swim bladder goes all the way to New York or Hong Kong or Shanghai and costs $80,000, dollars That's how they smuggle it. In order to, to get it all the way there, the Chinese mafia and the Mexican cartels connect themselves. The Mexican cartels operate the Mexican side and then the last part of the last chain, the last part of the chain is taken care of by the Chinese mafia. All this happens in the very front of the eyes of the Mexican government, perhaps the U.S. government and perhaps the Chinese government. In terms of the Mexican government, which is, as a journalist, as far as my investigation goes, there are people from the armed forces that see on the beach that Totoabas are being fished and they do nothing. Also the environmental authorities. So there is a lack a huge lack of rule of law that has put the vaquita on this endangering situation. And in a moment where climate change are being incredibly disputed by some very powerful governments, I think it's especially important to take a look at these films that not only cry out for the vaquita, but invite you to think of how, as humans, we need to reshuffle the deck in a relationship with nature. And I think that's what's important of Sea of Shadows. Film subject, Lea Zemel, and director, Philippe Meleis, with their film, Advocate. In the film, Leah Tismil defends Palestinians from feminist to fundamentalist, from nonviolent demonstrators to armed militants. As a Jewish-Israeli lawyer who has represented political prisoners for nearly 50 years, Tismil, in her tireless quest for justice, pushes the proxies of human rights defender to its limits. Well, I don't uh, think it needs a special courage. It needs the same courage that uh, is necessary in order to live in Israel in the Middle East after 50 years of occupation with so many Palestinians under occupation who are oppressed under the occupation. And it seems for me as an Israeli, but as a human being first of all, that this is the only 
rational and reasonable thing to do, to stand by the Palestinians with their struggle and to try to achieve, together with them, equality and freedom. This is the basic thing, I think. So, yes, it's, it's not very common and it's uh, quite extraordinary sometimes to think that any Israeli will defend the Palestinians. But I think this is the only way to survive where we are. So you're saying this is the only way to survive? Again, that's not a narrative that we hear. What does that mean? It means that if we, Israeli Jews, intend to live in that part of the world, we have to live in total equality. We cannot deny the Palestinians from their rights. We cannot prevent them from the right of, of citizenship in their own state or statehood. And uh, we should see the struggle, which is a daily struggle, as a normal self-understood struggle of people who are under oppression and under occupation. So I, in my field, the legal field, I'm trying really to show this picture to the average Israeli, to the average Israeli judge, to the military judge in military courts, and to go forward and and, uh, reassure everyone around me that this is the right thing to do and this is the right way to do. I'm not being taken as a hero in Israel, on the contrary, many would consider me a traitor and a self-hating Jew, as they like to say very often. But I think, no, I'm a self-loving Jew and I'm not a traitor and I'm the pathfinder for the Israelis, perhaps. So we are not only talking about the system, we are talking about, I would say, systematic occupation that does everything in order to deny the Palestinians of their rights. And um, we are a small minority of Israelis, but uh, quite vocal and I believe uh, at the end optimistic that, that think there is another way and that's what we are trying to show. And I'm doing it in my small field, you will see the story of the film. The film is called Advocate. Yeah, it is describing my life, but it describes the life in a very accurate way. The story, as you will see it in the movie, is not about winning, it's about losing. Because on the daily basis, the daily battles I lose, of course. I lose it with honor, I lose it with (laughs) speaking a lot, as you can hear. Uh, But it's not winning the cause yet. But it's the right cause. I hope it will be clear to whoever sees the film. So, Philippe, thank you so much for being here. And, and, you know, we're, we're speaking about this winning and losing. We're speaking about what it feels like to even be a traitor in your own country. What was it like emotionally for you to be a part of this film? This is such a, a major issue. And I think for the most, the majority of the world, we only know so little. We really don't understand the complexity or the truths that are happening in Israel between Palestine. How you dealt with this topic emotionally? Look, when you're doing a documentary, one thing that uh, motivates you is curiosity. You hear things, you n- hear things on in the press, or you hear things in the in um, what people are talking, and you want to go closer and see how it is. It's not the first thing I'm doing, and what led me in this movie was curiosity. Just to I heard about Leah, then I knew Leah for a few years and I knew about her work without exactly knowing what it means. Mm. 
what is her daily life, how she's doing it, how it feels to her. What motivates a, do a documentarian is exactly to pass what you read in the news, but just to go and observe and see how it's done. And it's what we've been doing in the film. And like in any movie, some of the time your camera is completely living with the character you're filming. And sometimes the camera takes a step or two steps aside and just is just watching her uh, from distance. So emotionally, sometimes I was completely in tune with Lea and sometimes I was more observing her and reflecting and I hope it's what what the viewer will get in the film uh, sometime being with her and understanding her and sometime thinking about her work with a little distance I want to start off with a question around storytelling with integrity, because I feel like with especially a lot of Native stories, so much has been done from this kind of white dominance anthropological storytelling, where, say, a white European descent filmmaker or storyteller will come into a community and extract the story rather than creating intimacy, creating relationship. And so I really want to talk about the act of storytelling with integrity. The interesting thing about all of that is... Director Jeff Palmer, with his film Words from a Bear. I cut my teeth, I think, in filmmaking as an anthropologist. So I went into anthropology because my father was a linguistic anthropologist. And... Um, the first films that I ever saw were ethnographic films on indigenous peoples. And I was pretty horrified. I think I ultimately, in the back of my mind, thought, wow, this is absolute exploitation. And I, and I also wondered in my mind that, you know, like, how did these people gain access and who gave them the right? So my, me, myself, you know, watching this uh, and gazing upon this, I was... I think mortified. I think I was certainly uh, felt different than everybody else that may have been viewing those films in those days of being an undergrad. The thing that's interesting about all of this is, you know, that opened the door for me. I think I, I was saying to myself at that point, like, what if you were inside the culture and you made these films? How would that change the narrative and how would that change the perspective? And that really sent me on my path. I mean, that's what I wanted to do. So when you talk about storytelling with integrity, you know, that's what I felt was integrity, was being on the inside. What I found is that's quite difficult as well. That's not a given. You don't walk in and just say, here I am. I'm so-and-so um, uh, native uh, filmmaker, and you know now I can have access to you. And even within my own tribal culture, which this film revolves around in Words from a Bear, there's a lot of reverence that goes into this filmmaking. And when you look at it from that perspective, you say, wow, how dare people just come right in and just grab and take? Because here's somebody that's within his own tribal group, and he has to have reverence, and he has to understand what the elders feel is important 
and what they believe should be said and things that should not be said. And so I went through a lot of effort to sit down with, with tribal elders where I was either using their material or that we were going into these stories. So hopefully this is what the film will do. You know, that's why I made the film was like to have a discourse so that we can talk about things and celebrate things. I mean, Scott Mamaday's story is unique. It's a unique story, but there's many native people that have done great things. You know, he's not the only one. He just, he opened the door of dialogue between indigenous people and the non-indigenous world in a way that I felt not very many people have been able to do. Words from a Bear examines the enigmatic life and mind of Pulitzer Prize-winning author Navarro Scott Mamaday. This profile delves into the psyche behind one of Native America's most celebrated authors of poetry and prose. Words from a Bear visually captures the essence of Mamaday's writings, relating each written line to his unique Kiowa American experience, representing ancestry, place, and oral history. He has an incredible childhood you know he grew up in the Dust Bowl era you know in abject poverty so that again like this is a unique American story it's like the American dream right but seen through the lens of a Kiowa man and so we haven't seen that American story we haven't seen that American dream story and you know his parents were amazing educators in his life and he spent a lot of time studying and ended up at Stanford University and wrote his first novel, House Made of Dawn, and within a few years won the Pulitzer. And, and that changed everything. I mean, the mere fact that he won the Pulitzer in 1969, okay, this is a time when, in, when Native people in this country couldn't even practice their own religion, and he won the Pulitzer, especially in such a, a, an amazing time period in 1969 where we're in the middle of the Vietnam War, there's assassinations happening, all of these different things. And here's this Indian man winning the Pulitzer. That was just so exciting to me. I thought, wow, why did this happen? How did this happen? It almost seems like the impossible. So for me, it was like I wanted to tell this story of what the possibilities are right? That as Native people, we can go out into the world and we can do great things. And in that, I find a kindred spirit with, with Scott, because I think having this film at Sundance, and, and I, I, I think there's eight films that are made by Indigenous people this year at the festival. That's wonderful. You know, we're doing things and, and we're showing that there's possibilities for all of us to tell our stories, to have communication, and we're reaching out and we're saying, look, we want to talk. We want to share with you and not have this wall between us. And I think Scott's work did that in that particular time period. He brought people together uh, over this novel that seemingly shouldn't have happened, right? In the span of only a handful of generations, the tiger has been transformed from a venerated creature with a role in our cultural consciousness into a major source of revenue. And the population of wild tigers in Asia has dropped from over 100,000 to less than 4,000. Tigerland illustrates how shifting political realities in Russia and India created a lucrative poaching underworld 
that decimated the tiger population. Okay, so who were the people who have revered them? Did you learn about their culture while creating this film? And what do you think shifted? Like, I know a lot of times people don't necessarily want to destroy their land base. They don't want to destroy these creatures, but something maybe comes into their village, comes into their place that destroys their land base, and a lot of times, not to say they have no choice, but there is a, um, there's a third component that creates a fissure in their culture. Yeah, well, you hit it the nail on the head, I mean. Producer Zan Parker and director Ross Kaufman from the film Tigerland. An interesting thing to consider that we learned um, was how much things changed for wildlife and for the wilderness in Far Eastern Russia when the USSR broke apart. People probably don't think a lot of the time about how animals were faring under communism, but they were faring actually quite well. And then when capitalism became the new way of life, but and not just capitalism, but the corruption that went along with the transition, the open borders, suddenly these, you know, foreign lumber companies could come in and chop down the forests. I mean, it, that's something that happened in the 90s, right? And then you look at the shifts in India, which is another country that we focused on, that had to do with an economy that had to grow and it had to support a lot of people. And so there's a lot of industrialization um, and a lot of changes because of that. So it, it isn't one moment. I, you know, I think both of us wanted to celebrate how the cultures respected and revered the tiger because it, they still do. I think all the Asian cultures still very much do. In India, it's also, um, I think there's 40,000 tigers in the beginning of the last century. Um, now there's less than 2,500. Um, and a lot of that was British colonialization. Tigers were all over. I don't know if they were as ubiquitous as deer are in the <laughs> Northeast. Um, but it was that similar kind of attitude that, you know, they're all over the place. You know, we can shoot them for sport. That went on for 50, 60 years, 70 years. Um, until people like Kailash Sankla, the activist and the conservationist in our film, really spoke up against it and created change. And, you know, I think it's really key to remember that there aren't really any bad guys and that our love and reverence for the tiger... Okay, there's some bad guys. (laughs) But I guess what I was saying is that the love and the reverence that so many of us have for the tiger, it's just one side of the coin. The other side of the same coin is people wanting to poach them for using their body parts, you know, for the products, for medicine or for luxury products. It's because people worship the tiger that they want parts of them and it's because people worship the tiger that they wanted to shoot one you know they wanted the rug or they wanted the fur or they wanted the hat on the wall it's because of man's obsession with this dominant fierce beautiful creature Without warning, Claudio Rojo is detained by ICE officials outside of his Florida home. He is transferred to the Broward Transitional Center, a detention facility used as a holding space for imminent deportations. Terrified of never seeing him again, Claudio's family contacts the National Immigrant Youth Alliance, a group of activist dreamers known for stopping deportations. Believing that no one is free as long as one is in detention, NIYA enlists Marco Saavedra to self-deport with hopes of gaining access to the detention center and impeding Claudio's expulsion. 
Once inside, Marco discovers a complex for-profit institution housing hundreds of multinational immigrants, all imprisoned without trial. Uh, yeah, my name is Mohammed Abdullahi, and I am here from Michigan, originally from Iran. And yeah, do you want me to spell my name or that's good? Hi, my name is Viridiana Martinez. I'm 32. I'm from North Carolina. Dreamers, from the film The Infiltrators. Um, so the work that we've always done is sort of like we do something and then we learn we learn from it and then we sort of adapt for the next project that we work on. When we did the Broward stuff, we sort of, first time we got exposed deeply to sort of like the asylum system. A lot of people inside the detention were seeking asylum. And through working with offices, et cetera, we sort of got exposed to that part of the process. And some of the things that were really alarming for us is the judge that's in Florida, Rex Ford, um, has a 99% denial rate on asylum. So out of 100 cases that he hears, only one person will get granted asylum. And so that was very glaring for us. Um, whenever we compared that to other detention centers around the country, sometimes usually it was like 40%, 50%. And so that sort of exposed the system to us. So the next action that we did immediately after the Broward Detention Center was this action that we did was bring them home, um, which specifically focuses on a lot of the issues you're mentioning, folks that were seeking asylum to come to the U.S. or folks that had previously been deported. And one of the things that we found is because of the fact that asylum is not respected in this country, and the reason it's not respected is because you have a lot more people coming from our southern border than are ever coming from Asia and other places seeking asylum. Their asylum rates are granted at very high rates compared to people from south of the border. And the reason I bring that up is because if people are not getting granted asylum cases on very real crises that are happening in their home countries, like the coup in Honduras that the Clinton administration supported, and other things... We do regularly see people that are fleeing because they can't access water. They, their crops aren't growing anymore because of the droughts, all these sorts of things. And they stand zero chance of being able to get asylum um, because we're still trying to catch up with laws from 20 years ago to get people that have very clear violence, have been kidnapped by the government. Like these are such clear cases that you see getting denied. Um, and so that's what we sort of learned when we were in Broward, how much deeper the system is and how it really is designed to be this way for people to lose hope, to sign their deportations, to leave. And one of the things that was really the most scary for us is that theoretically there's organizations in Florida that get $4 million a year to defend immigrants in the detention center, but they don't provide the services. And for us, it's very clear that that's part of the system. Their funding comes from the Department of Justice. Um, and they're supposed to then provide know your rights for people in the detention centers. And so after we saw that several times, we realized that this is how the system is set up. On one end, the government says, oh, they all have access to counsel. They're learning their rights. And on the other side, 99% denial rate, Representative Deutsch doesn't know the detention center exists. And this organization that's down there is responsible for advocating for these people. The whole system is very intentional. It's cool that you said it was intentional because it's so intentional. And for us, it's very obvious, but we've never had a platform to say that. So, But a lot of cl climate refugees are already coming and they really stand absolutely no chance. Um, on the border right now, when you present yourself, if you do not get a positive fear interview within a week of arriving, you're just expedited removal. And those folks coming with climate issues, they stand zero chance. Nobody's paying attention to them at all. Yeah, I mean, it. I think that there's a lot, obviously, to be said about people who are coming here. But if we talk about the people who are already here, I mean, the oppression is 
on all levels. Um, and I mean, like, for example, the case of Laura, one of the ladies in um, Broward. She was an Afro-Honduran who was actually beat up by Miami Police Department. And um, her arm was broken. So she was in Broward wearing a cast. So, again, that was like police department, an agency that you trust to protect and serve. And she's going to them for help. And instead of helping her, they detain her. You know, like that, um, the fact that access to higher education, you know, for, for undocumented kids. I mean, I come from a state, I come from North Carolina. In North Carolina, we can't pay in-state tuition like like our peers, like our citizen peers. And so what does that mean is that I don't get to go to college. I have to go right into the workforce. Um, what does that do to my psyche? Like, what does that do to my, what are my options, you know, in my future? So I think what's really awesome about about Broward and, and, and all the other stuff that we've done, I mean, not just Broward, um, but it's great that it's, you know, it's finally, it's got this platform and people are going to watch it and people are going to be like, whoa, this is amazing. But what's really great about it for me is that it shows people that there's a way, that they do have power, and, and that even if we are undocumented, we're not powerless. Um, we, can, we can fight back, and we can organize, and we can do so effectively, and you don't need to have tons of money. You can be going against the wave and still beat it. I think that's what's really powerful about, about Broward. Um, and it's what gives me hope because otherwise, quite frankly, like it's really depressing. And if I think of all the people that and all the organizations, all the institutions that that have worked against us throughout the years, honestly, the Tea Party is not our biggest opponent. Like, you know, the Republicans are not our biggest opponent. It's been the people who claim to be our friends that actually take advantage of us and pimp us out. That's what's hard through all this. Um, and so there's an established organization in Southern Florida called Americans for Immigrant Justice. Um, and Americans for Immigrant Justice has like, I'm sure, multi-million dollar budget. Um, they have attorneys. They have, they're very close with Democrats. Um, and yet Congressman Ted Deutsch didn't know that the detention center existed before we came along. It's like, Where's our like why why are these organizations with multi-million dollar budgets not facilitating due process? Instead, they're actually stumbling blocks. And this sort of replicates itself all around the country. I mean, just in the last three years, there's probably been over a million Central Americans that have come to this country fleeing persecution. And there's only about 15,000 immigration attorneys in this country. And so if you assume every single one of them does deportation cases, there's not enough resources in this country. Um, and ironically enough, the Trump administration expedited the cases of people that are fleeing violence, the people that need the most time to prepare their cases. So I think this film really, for us, sets the stage for people to know that there can be sort of like creative energy, there's creative ways to do things. And the biggest myth that we really want to challenge as it comes to the undocumented community and that is challenged through this film is you have to go against the norm. The more quiet you are, the more in the shadows you are, the more in danger you are. Um, and that's how the system wants you to live. When you speak up, when you hold your head up, and when you start organizing together, you can really dismantle things. When we set out to do Broward, our whole strategy was that if we can teach immigrants not to be afraid, then everyone loses power over us. I mean, there's no congressional office that we can't get on board. 
there's no detention center that we can't empty. Um, and once we start doing that, then the entire system falls apart. And so that was sort of the seed behind the Broward Detention Center action. And we did several other infiltrations as well. From the devastated Great Barrier Reef in Australia to the concrete seawalls that cover 60% of mainland China's coast, to the biggest terrestrial machines ever built in Germany, to psychedelic potash mines in Russia's Ural Mountains, to surreal lithium evaporation ponds in the Atacama Desert, the Anthropocene crew travels to six continents and 20 different countries to capture stunning images chronicling the catastrophic path traveled by our species over the last century. Hi, this is Ed. This is my normal speaking voice. Okay. And this is my normal speaking voice. I guess this is my normal speaking voice. If it's going to be this close, maybe it is, maybe it's not. Directors Edward Berninsky, Jennifer Bashwell, and Nick DePensier with the film Anthropocene, The Human Epoch. When we learned about the research of the Anthropocene Working Group, which is the group of scientists who are gathering evidence to try and ratify the Anthropocene as an official term in the geological timescale, we thought that was a fascinating and also increasingly rare perspective on the whole human project. They really are looking at planetary scale and geological time. And in our frenetic modern lives, we don't do that a lot. We're bombarded with the present. And then when we researched more and we discovered that they were having this exact conversation, where do we start? What is the definition of the start of the Anthropocene? Is it the Industrial Revolution? Because they they really have to look at that empirically, but also philosophically. We thought that's a really interesting conversation to have. And so that ability to visualize exactly what is going on and not have it as a blind spot and not have it as something that we that we aren't dealing with is precisely the ambition of this film to go and find these places and bring back pictures that are like witnessing and put them together and juxtapose them so that somebody viewing the film will come away hopefully with an appreciation of this unprecedented scale the project is is a feature documentary film it's also a museum exhibition it's two books and it's a whole education program we're really trying to use every possible combination of lens-based media to find some way of resonating with people so it's been a five-year project and one of the things that we really looked at in the research phase which was about a year um, was all the critiques of Anthropocene you know there's the capitalocene term which I'm sure you've heard before that Anthropocene is not the fault of all humans but the fault of a very select group of humans um, and the fault of a system uh, that believes in un- unlimited growth as as the norm, right? So there's that. There is the indigenous critique. There's a feminist critique. There are many different critiques of the term as a kind of blanket term. And we grappled with all of those while we were making the film. And in all of the work that we've done together, you know, whenever we go into environments, there is an act of arrogance in going all around the world and sort of landing somewhere and thinking you have something meaningful to say about that place. And so the way that we interact with these contexts is very much from a a position of humility and trying to 
learn about what the truth of that place is. We don't travel with the script. I mean, I've never made a script. In 25 years of making documentary films, I've never written a script. And I don't believe that it's possible to do that. You can't engage with reality and then dictate what is going to happen because then you don't see what is happening around you. So you have to have this sort of openness and also a kind of having a plan but being ready to abandon that plan at any moment if reality doesn't take you that way. So in every one of these places that we've been to, many really heavy, difficult environments, there have been moments of connection, moments of hope. You know, we were at the London Zoo filming species that are either extinct in the wild or critically endangered. And the Zoological Society of London has an unbelievable program of conservation. Zoos have become the agents of conservation. You know, they used to be a place where you went to see animals that were suffering. Um, and now, now they're, they have become the main conservation agents for, for uh, animals and other species around the world. And you just see these people who spend every day, you know, the woman who tended the mountain chicken frog babies you know she was their mother two years before they could she could take them back and reintroduce them into the wild so for every sort of terrible moment there was an opposite moment of of hopefulness people persevering with dignity in very difficult situations trying to make a living for their family or species possibly being reintegrated back into the wild or people actively positively working for change working for positive change and so um, the whole project is an act of hope on our part it's an act of hope to say that it's not too late actually we're incredibly ingenious creatures we just have to turn that ingenuity to pulling the earth back into a safe place for all life and so I would say that I, I ended this whole experience, and there were many, and everybody has a story of, of the most profound experiences we have, but um, came out of it uh, with hope. One of the scenes that, that for me was one of the most painful to, to witness was in Kenya, outside of Nairobi, uh, Kenya National Park, and they took all the tusk piles that were confiscated from poachers over a period of a decade. And and they estimated there was about 10,000 elephant tusks uh, that were confiscated and, and, and in storage. And rather than letting them go out into the marketplace and, and be turned into tchotchkes, you know, bangles or whatever else, you know, that currently uh, ivory is being used for, they said, let's burn it and let's not th- let this animal be desecrated once more and be used as ornaments. But they made 11 piles and pyres of these uh, elephant tusks and, and it very much opens the film and, and in a way closes the film as well. But, but being in the presence of that burning and when you understand, if you've spent any time around elephants and you understand the majestic nature of these animals and you, and you understand that these are sentient beings they their herds are like you know family and they they have memory they have they're amazing creatures and to, to and they understand when one of theirs is lost or killed by humans it doesn't it, they don't miss that and when you think of the carnage and knowing that every year 12 percent are, are being decimated every year to this uh, illegal uh, poaching it, it's a hard you know and it's a totally unnecessary extinction 
it seems to be a totally one that we should be able to stop, but yet, you know, it's so hard. So it really, uh, for me, it's it's painful to think that we just can't seem to get that right. I mean, there's a battle being fought right now in Africa, and a lot of these rangers, park rangers, have to be armed, uh, you know, like military, because the poachers are military now. So the whole front is militarizing, and and it's painful. And I know that, you know, speaking again, you know, you see these, you know, when you close the borders to ivory, then it really does stop it. If you've caught, you're criminally charged, you're fined, you're jailed, you're whatever. And now some of these things are opening up again. Rhino horns opening up again in China. And I remember hearing someone said, well, what if uh, we here in Africa thought that, you know, panda spleen was the, uh, a great thing for us and that that's our tradition because they're, they're claiming it's their tradition. Well, it, these traditions go both ways. We have to actually get beyond that kind of thinking and say, no, no, these are important animals in the whole matrix of the planet. And when they gone missing, we don't know what happens. You know, we don't know what the consequences of that is. So, but again, there's a lot of people with their hearts in the right place trying to stop it. Let's just hope that they win the day. Okay, so um, here we are at Sundance with Sherry, the chief curator of New Frontier. And this interview really does feel like a crown jewel in so many ways for us because I feel like you are curating the cutting edge of culture shifting. New Frontier at Sundance Institute is a cross-programmatic initiative created to identify and foster independent artists working at the convergence of film, art, media, live performance, music, and technology. Sundance Institute established the New Frontier Story Lab in 2011 to deepen its support of storytellers pioneering new ways of working across various media and engaging with technology. And in 2014, began the New Frontier Flash Lab and Artist Residency Programs. I'm really interested to hear how you came to this I don't want to say career, I want to say vision of being able to curate. Well, I think I came to this intersectional practice because uh, of who I am. Sherry Frelo, the chief curator for New Frontier. Uh, I grew up in Denver, and um, I'm half Puerto Rican, half Creole. Uh, growing up in a neighborhood and a community that didn't, I couldn't see other people that looked like me. Um, so I, I grew up with a lot of like, you're not this, you're not that, you're not white, you're not black. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, I came to really hate thinking about myself in terms of knots, knots, knots. And then I learned about quantum physics. And I learned that the fundamental quality of our existence exists as a wave and a particle at the same time, simultaneous. So I can be Puerto Rican and I can be Creole. I can be all of these multiple identities, beings. I can hold them all 
at the same time, simultaneously. And that, that it brought me an enormous power uh, to claim my own existence and my own authority over my existence. And so I moved forward, you know, in my practice. I went to school uh, on an engineering scholarship I studied, but I was very interested in culture. Once I got to, to Sundance, my goal was to make the, the culture here more capacious, more people, increase the diversity of the films, bring more voices, bring more visions into it. And the landscape started to shift as technology swung and made uh, what was possible more capacious in terms of expressions. I, I basically started New Frontier because a lot of our filmmakers were making work for YouTube all of a sudden. They were like creating works on CD-ROM. They were artists who were coming into the festival with full-fledged feature films from the art world. So I started to see this intersectionality that was happening organically, and we decided to create a, a platform for this work and this, these, these practices. So I know some of the new technologies that are being shown at New Frontiers is VR, AR, works. And it's interesting because I've had conversations with people who are really engaged activists and there's a spectrum of critiques on AR and VR. It's like, oh, well, why are we doing that? Like, why, why are we in these goggles? Or, you know, what is the world coming to? And we're, you know, and so I've heard that end of the spectrum or it's, it's for the elites, like who is even going to be able to see this? And it's only one person at a time. And, and then I've also had the experience where I have been completely transported into areas all over the world that I would never be able to experience, understand. And so I want to hear from you, maybe speaking to the critiques that people may, maybe you've heard from people around VR and AR and just kind of this hyper technological world, because of course, um, we could look at that as being a way to distance us from land base. It can distance us from natural systems. It can also do something else. And so I kind of would love to hear you speak on both sides of the spectrum and really explain to us, like, where do you feel like the power is in AR and VR? Well, these technologies are in a very experimental stage. There's a lot of excitement about it, a lot of investment that's gone into it. Uh, because of the power of the experience. I mean, it really is a, a, a big shift in communication, basically, that I'm able to communicate to you something, not just through your eyes or brain or even through your biochemistry, but through your body experience, the relationship between your reptile brain, you know, our, our primal brain and our bodies, our instinct. I can actually communicate through those avenues of your body. That hasn't really been true before in terms of a digital situation. So, so that's why people are really excited, and there's a lot of money going in. Um, but it is, it is four years old. <laughs> it is wow. young, wow. you know. Like a, Oculus became Oculus in 2014. Let's remember that. <laughs> it's only, it's like turning five. So it's, um, this is very emerging. We're at the very, very beginning of this, this uh, technological development, and so as a baby, you know, we're, we one at a time mm-hmm. kinds of experiences. And here's the thing, as a curator looking at this stuff, I'm thinking, you know, two years ago, uh, the work that I was going to see um, that I was hoping that it would reach, which is, you know, a social way to reach out to other people or experience mm-hmm. with other people is 10 years down the line. Mm-hmm. And every year, those visions happen the next year. So 
the development is happening at a hyperbolic rate. What you have to keep in mind are the values behind this technology. You know, storytelling is a technology. The kinds of stories that you tell, why you're telling them, is really what's important, the values. It's the same thing with the technology, you know, this, this new um, digital technology. It's all about the values behind it and how you use it. Here's what, what's interesting to me um, about the importance of this happening right now, of being able to communicate through the actual body, because we're individual, we're particles. Mm -hmm. It's going back to this quantum physics wave uh, particle duality, because, you know, as particles, particularly in Western culture, you know, we're we're individual, we're we're, we're our own person, and and we tend to, we're rugged individualists, and we tend to scale our actions and uh, see the world through that very limited um, scope and scale, but our actions go way beyond that scope and scale, and we're and we're we're feeling the massive effects of that, yes. particularly around in our environment and our biosphere, and you know our ability to to understand who we are. We're at an identity crisis. Mm-hmm. We've only know one part of us. We know the individual, but we're social creatures. Human beings are social animals. And what do, how do we identify in that way? That's beyond the immediate survival instinct. You know, here comes VR that, that communicates through that survival instinct. And it's networked. And, it, and, it's, and, it's, and it's developing at a hyperbolic rate. If there's an opportunity here, particularly being embraced by artists, as in my experience, to, to bring people together in ways that inspire awe, open the imagination, and, and help people create in these environments. And that's, that's what um, swims upstream from how technology is used in other ways. Like, uh, let's say it's, it swims upstream uh, for how the trend of, of digital platforms and their control on our lives and our time. You know, Cambridge Analytica, we showed the film called The Great Hack here at the festival about how Facebook um, and this, this company was, was using Facebook profiles to affect the election surreptitiously. But this is the kind of technology, you know, values behind the technology are using to control people, to sway, as opposed to create and do something new. So, you know, it's, it really, it's in the hands of the, of, of the maker. Uh, but I think that we desperately need as a, as a, as a culture, mm-hmm. as a species, to understand our true identity, which is dual. It's individual, and it's completely bound up with one another. And to scale that, if we're able to see ourselves as, a, as an organism that's, that's planet-wide, we make different choices. Thank you for listening to this special edition Sundance Film Festival episode of For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was from R.F. Shannon and Fountain Sun. I'd like to thank our podcast team, our co-producer and editor Andrew Stores, our co-producer and writer Francesca Glassbell, our communications director Aaron Wise, our music coordinator Carter Lou McElroy, and our co-managing directors, Mara Joy and Melanie Younger. Through the mountains like a river.